So let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this opportunity to begin our Lord's Day. Lord, we live in a world that's steeped with difficulties and pains, and we have to work hard to scratch a living from the soil, as it were, Lord. And, and um, we are, we're not welcome here. We're aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And so the Lord's Day is a day for us to shed the, the weights of the world and to leave behind the, the cares that we have and to enter into a little moment of rest, a moment of spiritual refreshment. And I pray, Lord, for our precious saints here that that would be the, the case this day, that each one would be refreshed and revitalized in their soul and reminded of the eternal, great, and heavenly things that we would turn our eyes heavenward. And by doing so, Lord, we would be more faithful and more effective servants for you in this difficult world, that we might be the salt and the light that you have uh, commissioned us to be. We pray that this would be a day honoring to you, a full day of knowing our God and worshiping you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, on that high note of glorifying God with our worship, we will go down to the low note of how do you use figurative language? Um, when you're studying, or how does the Bible use figurative language? Um, I'm going to back up just a little bit here, just to make sure we're we're on the same page. And we started talking about figures of speech, and this is a, this is a pretty important topic. And I, I'm going to go off track just for a moment. Um, those who say that believing a historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutic of the Bible. Uh, they, they make a straw man argument, a false accusation toward us in saying that, well, you take everything literally and so you can't deal with figures of speech. That's not true at all. There, I don't know a single uh, theologian in our theological camp that when they read Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock, says that the Lord is a piece of granite. They don't do that. Nobody does that. So that's a that's a false argument. Um, the worst sort of argumentation is to say that your spiritual or that your uh, theological opponent believes something that they don't believe. That's just a lie. Um, so that's that's inaccurate. Of course, figurative language is all throughout the Bible, and we I'll back up just a little bit. We talked about why the Bible uses figurative language. It adds color, vividness. It gives immediate meaning. When we say the Lord is my rock, a five-year-old can understand that. And a, a, a 95-year-old can understand that. It's, it's immediate. It gets your attention. I like it when Paul says, watch out for those dogs in Philippians 3 verse 2. Okay, well, that's, you've got my attention. Um, you, ever, you ever read Jesus and his uh, speech to the Pharisees near the end of Matthew, Matthew 24, 25, in there, the woe to you speeches. He calls them names. He says they're going to hell. He says they're cursed of God seven times over. Um, that will get your attention. He says you're snakes, you're whitewashed tombs. He uses figures of speech to the max to get his message across. It makes abstract or difficult ideas uh, more concrete. Um, we said last time, which is easier to understand? The Lord superintended my spirit at that moment to totally guide me into a vision of the future. Or, as Ezekiel 3 says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. We understand that. The hand of the Lord was upon me. If you have a two-year-old, you know what that means. Because when the two-year-old is going that way, you put your hand on him and you make him go that way. It's, it's clear. It helps us remember 
You are like whitewashed tombs. Jesus made a very clear picture of the Pharisees. They're, they look good on the outside. They're dead on the inside. It captures the big idea easily. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. And it encourages reflection and thinking about God's word. If every single word in scripture was simply didactic, here are three things you need to know about the Trinity. Now here are six things you need to know about this and that. That, that doesn't encourage as much reflection and as much... Um, Uh, really thinking. This is why, even though we're doing it here, and we will do it uh, at at our retreats, um, I'm not a big fan of written materials in front of people who are listening. Because that might work well in the academic world, but I want you chewing on and thinking about and sharpening your mind. And uh, I just read this recently. A Harvard study just said you actually learn less when there's a PowerPoint on than when there's not. So, sorry about that. You're going to learn a little less, but we have these done. So, but, the, but figurative language makes you think. What does it mean that the Lord is my rock? It encourages what the Bible commands dozens of times the meditation on Scripture. How is the Lord my rock? Why is He my rock? What does that mean in my life? So, figurative language is very, very useful to us. Now, when it gets down to actually studying a passage of Scripture, um, we'll get to some kind of rules or figures of, or or how to identify a a figure of speech, kind of some guidelines here. And I'm backing up just a little bit. You always take passages literally unless there's a good reason for not doing so. We made this case before, but all the numbers in the book of Revelation, 1,000 years, 144,000 sealed Jews, 1,260 days, three and a half days. There is nothing in the text to tell you to take it literally, or to take it figuratively, rather. Um, There's nothing there that says that. Uh, Now, we cross-reference this with the idea that Absolute precision uh, is not called for when the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. Does that mean it wasn't 185,001 or 185,999? doesn't mean that, but that's still a precise number. Um, if you looked at your watches or phones right now, all of you will know it's approximately 939. But it's you might say 940, you might say 938. It's still... Uh, it's still precise. So take a passage literally unless you have a reason not to do so. Take the passage figuratively when it tells you to do so. And I know we're reviewing right now. But take the passage figuratively if it's a simile, like or as. That's, that's obvious. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That doesn't mean, as one charismatic church taught, that when you open your Bible, you should do this. <laughs> That's just, I don't even know how to categorize that, but <laughs> you wouldn't do that with a newspaper, but you do it with the Bible. So, so it's, it's, there's a lot of common sense to this. Take the passage figuratively. If the literal interpretation is contrary to the context or the purpose of the passage, uh, Romans 5 speaks of the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is not a beast wandering around the throne room of God. The context is Jesus Christ. Be aware that figurative language is a major technique in prophecy and poetry. It is there. It is all over the place. And so you you take it in stride and and deal with it. Take a passage figuratively if the literal sense would involve something absurd or something impossible. Um, The Lord told Jeremiah he was making them into a fortified city, an iron pillar with bronze walls. This doesn't mean that Jeremiah was suddenly going to be bronzed. 
The trees of the field clapping their hands. That's my favorite uh, absurd one. The trees are not clapping their hands. This is, a, this is a, a symbol of creation finally being released from the curse of sin. Um, and by the way, all throughout the Bible, creation is, is represented as a victim of man's sin. And so they're innocent. Creation is innocent. That's why they're waiting, as Romans says, groaning until the coming of the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the believers being totally justified or glorified, rather, now creation is, is uh, rejoicing, as it were. So, of course, the trees of the field clapping their hands makes sense. Take a passage figuratively if the literal revolves immorality. We use the example of Jesus saying that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Obviously, he's not promoting cannibalism. He's promoting that you must be completely immersed in Christ. And if the figurative statement is followed by a literal explanation, the figurative sense is confirmed. Paul spoke of those who fall asleep. We talked about soul sleep, um, which, is, which is false. Right afterwards, he says they died. So it's pretty clear. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians six seventeen. So it's it's pretty common sense, actually. Just kind of use your brain and and think through it. And uh, if you come up with something that no one else ever has, it's really easy. You're wrong. So that's a real simple rule of thumb. Okay, now let's let's move on to how do you identify or how do you interpret figures of speech. This is, this is where it gets a little bit dicey. You've identified the figure of speech. How do you interpret it? Well, first of all, you're determining if the language is figurative or, or literal. Once you've determined that this is figurative, symbolic, discover the literal sense. So, in, in other words, every figure of speech represents something that is real. There's no such thing as a symbol that, that doesn't represent reality. Uh, so anytime you read a theologian that says, well, uh, such and such is, is symbolic. Okay, symbolic of what? And what in the text tells you this? Um, we're going to talk about this later this morning, but one theologian I read um, this past week says that the thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, uh, the thousand years simply means a long period of time. And here's his rationale. Ten is a number of completion in the Bible. Three is a number of completion in the Bible. Ten times ten times ten, ten three times, is a thousand. And so it's symbolic of completion. Okay, boy, that sounds good. And all the letters after his name makes you go, ooh, he must be right. He's wrong because he just made it up. There's nothing in the text that tells you that. So you want to be very clear if something is figurative... You must explain why, not just you want it to, or, uh-oh, this doesn't fit my theological system if I don't make this figurative. Then change your theological system. So, determine if the language is figurative or literal. Once it's figurative, then you're looking for the literal sense. Jesus said in John 2.19, destroy this temple. What was he referring to? His body. Yeah, so you're looking for the literal sense. And then you give the reason for the comparison, and now you have a, a reasonable uh, Bible study method. So I put a little chart up here with a few uh, examples. The image of a shield in Ephesians 6.16. The non-image is faith. The, the thing that it represents is faith. And what's the comparison? Faith is a protection. 
So faith is a shield, is like a shield. You have the image of sheep in Isaiah 53.6. In the non-images, mankind. What does the context say? We all, like sheep, have what? Gone astray. Because what do sheep do? They barely have a brain. They have like four brain cells. And so... They just, oh, look, there's a cliff. Let's try jumping off it. They're, they wander. So it's, it's clear that man spiritually wanders away. What, the image of the true vine, John 15, 1. Jesus is the non-image, and this is easy. He says, I am the true vine. So that's not difficult. Um, what's the comparison? Only by connection to the Lord Jesus are you in, the, are you in life. Do you have life? You've all cut branches off of a tree. Those branches, uh, if they haven't already, they turn brown and they die because they're not connected. So, those are figures of speech. And I I know that sounds like a a technical issue. And you might say, well, I don't want to deal with that. But this is how God chose to to write. rather, And He wants us to deal with them. He wants us to chew on them and to meditate on them and to, to think on them. I'm going to do a little side issue here because this is something that uh, some will point at us and say, you know, you can't take the Bible literally because of uh, idioms. Idioms. Um, idioms are not people who don't know how to study the Bible. Um, <laughs> idioms, it's, they're slightly different than figures of speech. An idiom is a string of words that has a meaning that's different than the main meaning conveyed by the individual words. So, a string of words. For example, I put some examples up there. I did not. Uh, I'm going to hit the sack. Everybody knows what that means, right? It's an idiom. But it doesn't mean that I have a paper sack that I'm going to punch with my fist. It doesn't mean that. Um, kick the bucket. We all know what that one. We have wo- lots of idioms for uh, dying, right? We, we use them as euphemisms. Kick the bucket, uh, buy the farm, whether some of the others. Help me out. <laughs> Say that again. Take a dirt nap. Take a dirt nap, yes. I haven't heard that one in a while. That's good. (laughs) That idiom brought to you by Logan Street. (laughs) I'm snowed under. We all know what what these mean. And the Bible uses idioms. An idiom is a metaphor that takes on its own literal meaning. So, for example, um, there, there are some that would say that the Bible is, is inaccurate because Jesus was not in the grave for three 24-hour days, but it says he was in the grave for three days and three nights. Matthew 12.40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you read at all about Hebrew idioms, three days and three nights means any part of three days and three nights. Any part. Since Jesus was crucified on Friday, his resurrection was on Sunday. He was not in the grave for three 24-hour days, but he was in the grave for three days and three nights. So that's why idioms are important. Uh, Or here's another one. That the son of something means you take on the character of that thing. Ephesians 5, 6, we were sons of disobedience. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, we are now sons of light. So idioms are important and they help you understand what the author is trying to convey. Okay, now we're going to dive into some technicalities here that I I just want you to have at least heard this once so that you don't make some mistakes maybe that go along with this, and that is um, typology. 
typology. We start with this because things get better throughout the day. So we start with the technical. This is from the Greek word uh, tupos, which just means a mark or a pattern or an example. And and we use the word that way uh, even now. That uh, we, uh, you remember these things called typewriters? That it made a type of the the little key that strikes the paper. So it's not always used in the technical sense in the New Testament, but here's a, a good definition of type. A type may be defined as an Old Testament person, event, or thing having historical reality and designed by God to prefigure or foreshadow in a preparatory way a real person, event, or thing so designated in the New Testament and that corresponds to and fulfills or heightens the type. Let me say that shorter. Old Testament picture with a greater New Testament reality. Okay? Jesus did not parachute to the earth and suddenly this was new information. There are so many precursors, prefigurings, foreshadowings, um, direct prophecies of Christ that when he came to earth, he accused spiritual leaders of not knowing who he was. Because he basically said, if you read your Old Testament, you would know who I am. So types help us that way. There's, there's the antitype. The antitype is the ultimate fulfillment and the reality that the type points to. Now, I have to, and you'll see why I'm doing this. Let me give you a different definition. This is an illustration. It's different than a type. And I'm going to explain why this is important. Illustration is a biblical person, event, or thing having historical reality that pictures or is analogous to some corresponding spiritual truth in a natural and unforced way and is not explicitly designated in the New Testament as a type. And you catch that last part right there. Not explicitly designated in the New Testament as a type. Well, how do you know something is a type? The New Testament says so. And we'll get to why this is important here in just a second. So let me give you, going back to type now, the elements of a type. There is resemblance. There's a clear comparison. There is historical reality. The types are persons who really lived, events that really happened. There's a prefiguring, there's a predictive, a foreshadowing element that's very clear. There's a heightening. The antitype, which is the second thing, the greater, is greater than, superior to the type. There's divine design. God designed it to be clearly seen as a type, and we know this because he says so in the New Testament. And this is the big one. It's designated in the New Testament as a type. Now, why am I, why am I going into this detail? The misuse of typology is very often what leads to allegorizing Scripture and making hidden meanings in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean here. If you look for types everywhere, now you're going for, well, here's the real meaning. When Abraham had Sarah make a meal for the angel of the Lord and his two angels in the book of Genesis, that meal really symbolized this, and it really is symbolizing of the, the sacrifice of Christ in the New Testament. And that sounds wonderful, but now you've forgotten what the meal actually was about. The meal was actually about Abraham being a good host. That's what it was about. It was about an actual meal. Um, So you don't, if you overly type everything, now you're forcing meanings. Um, 
If you do extreme type finding, you're not seeking the original meaning to the Old Testament text. That you immediately start jumping to the, well, what's the big spiritual meaning? the I think the most classic example we've used this before is the what the the five stones that David picked up to fight Goliath with what they represent faith and truth and integrity and all of that no they just represented stones that could kill a bad guy that's that's what they were they're not a type of anything and extreme type finding eventually leads you to reinterpreting the Old Testament with the New Testament instead of going to the original intent of the authors of the Old Testament. I, I think that Moses would not be happy to find out how many people have reinterpreted everything he wrote in the Pentateuch. Because who were the original readers? The original listeners and readers, if you were, were the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, on the plains of Moab, on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to take the land that was rightfully theirs by God's decree. They were the original intended recipients. And so you always take that into consideration first. So, for example, if I identify Solomon as a type of Christ, there are many similarities, we'll get to that in a minute, then I miss the lessons in the life of Solomon. I miss his importance in the Davidic covenant. You, you skip ahead. You, you, you miss what the Old Testament was meaning to teach you. The Bible does not start in Matthew 1.1. It starts in Genesis 1.1. And the Old Testament is not somehow less applicable to us. We're not under the, the covenant in the Old Testament, but we are under the truth contained there. So... This is very important uh, because if you get way too excited about typology, then you'll see it everywhere. Ooh, look, it's everywhere in the Bible. And then you stop looking for just what the plain meaning of the text is. Let me give you some examples, though, of definite types and antitypes. The Passover lamb and Christ. John one twenty nine. Why do we know this is a type? Because John one twenty nine says it's a type. That Jesus is the Passover lamb. Melchizedek and Christ. Hebrews 6.20. Why do we know that Melchizedek is a type of Christ? Because Hebrews 6.20 says so. Aaron and Christ. The high priest. Hebrews 5. Very clear. And this is, this is a neat crossover because Melchizedek is a king and kingly priest. And Aaron is a priest, a high priest. And so Jesus encompasses all of this. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread compared to as the as the type of the believer's holy walk with God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8 says this is what it is. You have the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament. This is Christ's resurrection, a pledge of believer's resurrection because the New Testament says this is what it is. So if you, if you want to get a useful book, um, Roy Zuck, Basic Bible Interpretation, has an excellent chapter on types, and I think he accurately identifies 17 clear type and anti-type examples from the New Testament, and that's it. That you don't make more of them, but they're huge. It would make a, actually a terrific Bible study to walk through those 17 uh, with yourself or with a, with a group. So why did, I, why did I bother to give you a definition of illustration? Because we have lots of illustrations that are useful. They're not types and antitypes, though. Here's some good illustration. Moses and Jesus. Now, admittedly, that's a big one. That is a big one, and some would argue that that Moses is a type of Christ. Uh, I've argued that if you're going to add number 18 to Roy Zuck, that's probably the one to add. Um, But... It, the illustrations are huge. Uh, Joseph and Jesus, the illustrations are huge. Solomon and Christ, the, the illustrations are huge. 
Now there's one particular special issue with typology, and that is Adam. Once in a while in the Bible, there's just something that's in its own category because that's how the Bible places it. Um, you remember we said that, that tupas type is not always used in the technical sense. Well, Romans 5.14 says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So this says Adam was a type, but Adam doesn't meet most of the criteria of a type. He's analogous to Christ in many ways, but Adam's life certainly can't be viewed as prefiguring Christ in the sense that, that, that Christ is like Adam. Uh, in fact, Adam, Christ is the opposite of Adam. We're going to show that later this morning. He's, he's the opposite. Adam is presented as the opposite of Christ. Through Adam came death, and through Christ came what? In life. So, so that's a special issue here. So my main point with you is be conservative with typology. If you want to dive into this in your own Bible study, it's very interesting, but, but be conservative. Good rule of thumb, lots and lots of glorious illustrations. The, the Bible is filled with these woven threads that go all the way from Genesis to Revelation that you can, you can point out these threads over and over again. It's very much like a tapestry uh, in that way. Uh, but that doesn't mean that... X in the Old Testament is the same as the greater version of Y in the New Testament. Because now you're going to start interpreting backwards from New Testament to Old. So, good rule of thumb. Lots of illustrations. Very few types. Treat them with with specialness. Um, Types are special. They're precious. They, They confirm to us what's important to God. They confirm His clear sovereign hand over redemptive history. That's what is so confirming about Scripture is that those threads run all throughout both illustrations and types. So let's get down to just brass tacks here. We used our example passage we've been going through, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Now I'm putting together all of session 5 what we've talked about and we didn't do it all this time we did some last time so we're going to do just the checklist here what's the literary genre which we talked about last time it's an epistle so that means it's direct didactic teaching on either doctrine or duty it's in the Christian duty section so Ephesians 4 let all bitterness and wrath and anger there, there are no hidden meanings there there's no metaphors. Are there any figures of speech? None in this one, and that's, the, that, that's why there's no excuse. This is easily understood. I, I think a six-year-old can understand Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Don't think the wrong thoughts and use your mouth right. Don't be a jerk. I mean, that's, what, that's what the kid's going to say. This is what it's saying. What's the idiom here? Well, there's an idiom. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. What does that mean? It's like, it's like discarding something. It's like putting something in a drawer, never to be seen again. Yet you ever discover that item of clothing tucked at the back of a drawer and you think, I haven't fit into this in like 15 years. Why do I even still have this? It's, it's put away. It's useless. So it, there's an idiom there. Is there any typology? None here. And that, that's a very useful thing because this just clears away anything that you have to wade through. It's very, very direct. We talked about structural analysis. What's the structure? There's two commands. Get rid of the negative. 
bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, lack of grace, along with all malice. And command number two, take on the positive. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. To remember grace as God and Christ forgave you. This is, uh, this is, by the way, it's very poetic, isn't it? It's very parallel. That you should do this, or you should get rid of this, and you should take this on. You should take this out of your closet to wear, and you should throw this out of your closet and to put it away. All kinds of metaphors you could use. So it has a very, very clear structure to it. So if you're doing the Bible study assignment, where we are right now is what's the literary genre of my passage? Why does that make any difference? Are there any figures of speech? There are five uh, passages that we've given you as options. Every one of them has at least one figure of speech. They were chosen for that purpose. So do your study on that and find out what it means. And then if you really want to get get into this, try a structural analysis of your, of your passage. Even if you get it wrong, um, if you do three outlines of your passage, you'll know it better. And you might not like any of them, but you'll say, well, I know this, I know this a lot better. So we got through that part. And um, first of all, any questions on that? I'm going to shift gears here in a minute. Any questions on what we did today? I know that you're going to just get on your knees and thank God for typology tonight. Um, but, but I do. I'm thankful that we have a God who paints pictures in the Old Testament that have realities in the New. That they were warned ahead of time that this is real. But do you have any questions just about studying, studying this or doing this on your own? No one ever does. I don't know why. That's a... Um, if you, if you want to, let me. I can't recommend Roy Zuck's book enough, Basic Bible Interpretation. It's easy to understand, and it's very comprehensive. So it's, a, it's not an exciting read. I mean, it's something you want to read late at night when you need five more minutes before you fall asleep. But um, it is helpful to you. What I did want to do was, since I, I thought we might have some extra time today, I wanted to just kind of share my own heart on a passage that is is really meaningful to me, and I, I haven't prepared anything. I just want to share with you, and if you if you do have your Bible, I'm going to look at First Corinthians chapter two because this relates directly to the study of Scripture. It relates directly to our place in the world, but particularly, I think the power of of Scripture. And I just want to read through it and just make a few little comments for you because I, I think 1 Corinthians 2 is incredibly important for us. It, it's, it's encouraging in that we live in a world that is continually trying to evaluate Christians, trying to evaluate Christ, trying to evaluate the Bible. And we can sometimes get sucked into being engaged with that. And I want to show you why that's a pointless exercise and why you don't need to do that. But I just want to walk through just a few little observations here. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1, this is Paul writing a defense to the Corinthian church that they believe the gospel not for the reasons maybe they are now thinking. They are sort of starting to think that we believe the gospel uh, because we're really smart and, and we're, we're wise. He even says uh, in the earlier chapter, he says, There aren't many of you that are wise, not many of you that are noble. That you're the weirdos of the world and that's who God saves. 
1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with the superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And let me skip ahead here to uh, verse 4. And my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. So what is, he, what is he saying here? He didn't come with superiority of word, didn't come with superiority of wisdom. He, he came not with persuasive words of wisdom. I, I've heard this said, well, he didn't put an emphasis on good preaching. That's not what he's saying here. Paul is addressing the Corinthians who lived in the world of what, what they call the sophists. Uh, it's a Greek word for wisdom. Sophists were like professional speech makers. They were a combination of, of uh, academic men and a stand-up comedian and lecturer and philosopher, all kind of rolled into one. And these sophists would travel around and they, were, they, were, they would do the same show, as it were, all over the place. If you've ever been to a show, a one-man show, whether it's a stand-up comedian or, or somebody who does a serious one-man act or something like that, you think, oh, that's so good, it's so amazing, it's so powerful. Well, it's because they've done the same thing a thousand times. Right? So they were living in a world where there's, there's no Netflix, there's no Amazon Prime, as it will be in the Millennial Kingdom. There is no, there's no nothing. But when these guys, they would send a representative ahead of them with, uh, with posters or, or just a scroll to stand on a big rock and say, um, tomorrow night at the, at the Palladium Theater, theater will be so-and-so. And he will be talking about the, uh, the terrible things about Aristotle and why you should run from him. Well, that sounds interesting. I think we'll go to that. There's nothing else to do. Once it gets dark, you go to bed. So instead, you go to this show. And it was... It was fun. It was serious. Sometimes two men would put on debates. And, and it, was, it was entertainment. Paul didn't do that. What did he say in verse 2? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was focused on the gospel. It doesn't mean he didn't teach other truths of scripture, but he didn't use his so-called own wisdom. He wasn't entertaining. He wasn't trying to make people happy. He wasn't trying to force laughter. He wasn't trying to do anything except tell truth. And so what he's telling them is, you believed, not because I was a one-man show, you believed because the Spirit of God made you believe. Because that's what truth does. And in fact... Unlike the sophists who... Have you ever been to a show that you think he's not quite ready and it makes everybody nervous because he's not really that good? You know, like, a, like the symphony in a town of 50,000? Like, don't go to that. Go to the symphony in L.A. or something where they actually are good. Everybody's nervous. Not with a sophist. They had confidence and charisma. They walked on the stage. They, they took the room. And Paul said, that wasn't me. I came, he says, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Because what he's about to do is take the gospel message and destroy every idol that all the unbelievers hearing have in their hearts. That he's going to knock them down. He is going to basically, if you want to put it like an entertainer, go and insult his audience for hours. And pray that they respond to that message. So he came with fear and trembling. But he gives a reason in verse 5. It's so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
One person told me once, I was convinced of the gospel by the power of your preaching. And that saddened me because that's not... The power of preaching is not the gospel. The gospel is the power of the gospel. Now, I believe in preaching with power. It's the greatest message ever, and I'm not going to apologize for it. But Paul says, May you never believe that your faith rested on some sort of wise presentation. It was on the power of God. That's where faith comes from. Verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are being abolished. Among the mature, the believers who have said, I'm done with the wisdom of this world. I want to know the wisdom of the Word of God. That's all there is. That's the only source. That's the only um, standard of truth there is. That I don't... Uh, uh, Christian psychologists hate 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Because they're trying to take the wisdom of the world and marry it to the word of God. You can't do that. It's oil and water. It's enemies and friends. You can't do it. The mature says, the word of God is my sole source of truth. There is no other source. And Paul acknowledges that what he has said is something that can only be understood if God allows you to understand it. Verse 7, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. What is that mystery? It is the gospel, and it is that Christ is the Messiah. He is the center of the gospel. In fact, he gives an illustration in the middle of verse 8. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age. In this context, it would have been the the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and then going outwards into the Roman Empire. None of them understood. They didn't have wisdom. They didn't understand. If they had understood, there were a few who understood. There were men like Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel. He understood. He helped, him. he helped to prepare the body of Christ for burial because he became a believer in John 19. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Jewish leaders of Israel, he understood. He gave his best family tomb to bury his Savior. But almost all didn't understand. But just as it is written, verse 9 Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. I hate to destroy the context here does not mean heaven. This is not about heaven. If you've been into any Christian bookstore, may most of them go out of business because most of them are terrible. This is not about heaven. You have a picture. If you have a picture of heaven behind this verse, you got the context wrong. If you have a picture of the cross or a Bible, you get the context right. Things which eye have, has not seen, ear has not heard, hasn't entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. That is the gospel, that is the word of God. Nobody, no human being thought up the gospel. No human being thought up a substitutionary sacrifice. No human being thought up Genesis through Revelation. This is all from God. You wouldn't know any of it if God didn't reveal it to you. And here's the contrast, verse 10, but to us. Wow, what a great phrase. But to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. 
For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And he gives an illustration. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. In other words, you will not figure out anything about God unless the Spirit reveals it to you. You will not use logic. You will not use intellect. You will not use a a, a PhD in religious studies. You won't use anything. You cannot possibly figure out God. You cannot figure out His Word unless He allows it. In verse 12, what a glorious phrase here. Now we have received, past tense, not the spirit of the world, which is useless, pointless. You, you, the, the world uh, sits at the feet of children and asks them what, what they should do. Is it okay to mutilate your own bodies? Okay, we'll go along with that since you're eight and you know everything. But the spirit who is from God so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. When you hear the Word of God read, preached, talked about, and something in your soul stirs that I can't believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, that all my sins are forgiven. They're sunk to the bottom of the ocean. They're they're cast away as far as the east is from the west. God remembers them no more. The God who knows all says he won't remember my sin. How does that work? When your soul is stirring with those truths, that is the Spirit of God stirring that pot and saying, you will be thrilled by this. You all have had the experience of sharing the gospel with someone that just glazes over. And that because the Spirit of God is not stirring in them. In verse 13, he continues, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. In Greek, it's just combining spiritual with spiritual. Lots of different versions add in some words there. You have depths and words in italics. That's a, that's a best guess. I, I think the best way to put it is combining spiritual truth with spiritual people. Spiritual truth with those who are filled with the Spirit, who have the Spirit of God to understand. And I think this is clear from verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. This means that the Word of God will be intelligible to the unbeliever only when the Word of God is made intelligible to the unbeliever to the point of salvation. It doesn't mean that the unbeliever can't make some uh, accurate observations from the Bible, but they won't come to the conclusion that I'm a sinner and need salvation unless the Spirit of God does that. And then the Word of God is open. This is what some call the doctrine of illumination, that only the Spirit can illumine the Word of God to you. This is the exciting thing about studying the Bible, that if you will pray along the lines of Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law, the Spirit of God will help you with that. That doesn't mean that, well, I don't need to know what typology is because the Spirit of God will tell me. No, I just told you the Spirit of God will help you know how to use that. And look at the contrast here. This is my whole point, verse 15. But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. What does that tell you? It means that you as a Christian, through your Holy uh, Spirit-empowered understanding of the Word of God, you are the only ones that can accurately assess what's happening in the world. The unbeliever has no capability of doing this. And they get it wrong every time. They get it upside down. And you might think, well, what about 
What about those people who are like politically conservative and they, they get a lot of things right and that's great. That is not because it's the Spirit of God. It's because things that are right are logical. And even unbelievers can be logical, but that's not coming from Scripture. That's just, that's just common sense. That's just logic. But as far as interpreting the world spiritually, only the Christian can do that. And you can't get engaged in a debate with somebody about spiritual interpretation of the world. You must just go to the Word of God. And you must explain that the Word of God says that people are sinners. They are dying every day and going to hell. And in the meantime, they will be uh, going in the wrong direction. And then he gives one last big exclamation point, quoting from the Old Testament, verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will direct him? Look at this promise. But we have the mind of Christ. What's the whole context? The whole context is that you will understand the Word of God only by the Spirit of God. And this is a direct Naming of Scripture as the mind of Christ. So, put aside logical arguments, put aside philosophical arguments. I'm not a fan of philosophical theology. Philosophical theology starts with logic and works its way to the Bible. I think that's exactly backwards. So, as you're studying the Word of God, keep in mind verse 14 that the depths of the Spirit of God are spiritually examined. And that's a promise that you can have. So don't let the study of the Bible be something that's just academic to you. You are encountering the very mind of Christ. And there is a there is an awe to that. There is a, a fearsomeness to that. There is a fearfulness to that. And I hope that you will elevate Scripture in your mind because Paul took a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians to elevate Scripture as high as Mount Everest. And that's how we ought to see it as well. I wanted to share that with you. This is encouraging to me as I study the scriptures. And I hope it will be for you as well. Why don't we pray and then we'll be done. Our Father, thank you for time to just talk more pedantically, I guess, about the mechanics of studying the Bible. But as I look at these beautiful, precious, soon-to-be-glorified saints of Christ... It is through the scriptures, Lord, that they will understand your mind. They will understand the mind of the Savior. And I pray, Lord, that every person here would make room in their lives to open their Bibles and to believe that by the Spirit of God you will show them wonderful things in your law. I pray, Lord, for those who are engaging in more uh, deep and long-range Bible studies, Lord, that it's a thrill to their soul, that it changes their words and their thoughts and their behaviors, and that it is significant in their lives to conform them to the image of Christ. I pray that we would believe in the Bible that is only understood by the Spirit of God. I pray that we would believe in a Savior who literally is called the Word of God. May we elevate the scriptures because they elevate you. All to the glory of our Savior, who gave us the word of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.